0: good to see you today and I want to thank you for uh, rearranging your schedule and uh, um, so God bless you for being here and uh, I have been looking forward to this. I'm, I'm almost sad that I'm here because now it means it's almost over uh, at least for me. So uh, Brother Jim Van Gelderen, Brother Wayne Van Gelderen and uh, all of the Van Gelderens, God bless you. I've never met one that I don't love. Amen. And and that I admire. I was telling Daniel, I feel so unworthy to be here, uh, but I'm honored to be here. I'm blessed to be here. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to invite your attention to the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. And I have to tell you, um, I I felt uh, a little bit, um, how can I say, um, unnecessary. Because I know the theme of this conference, not just this year, but for years, has often been understanding the Christ life, the positional truth, and how it relates into the practical life. And I thought to myself uh, it'd be like going, going to, how, how can I say to a conference on faith and talking about faith or a conference on love, explaining what love is to people that have been doing it for years, uh, a conference on hope and explaining what really hope means. And, you know, I'm kind of Johnny come lately. It goes with my name, but, uh, it's a great truth that we're dealing with today. And so it often needs to be reminded. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you something and, uh, Dr. Wayne, I think that you can relate to this also, any preacher can. Did you ever have certain themes and certain subjects that it does your heart good to go over these truths? And so this is something that does my heart good. And so, especially when I've been in a place where I've never uh, preached that much before, um, I, I'm always uh, anxious to get to this point. There, there are two areas that I just love to go to where I've never been before, and, and this is one of those areas, the other would be the cross, and of course, that all merges together, knowing who Christ is and what he did for us on the cross changes everything, Amen. and uh, it, it really does. So if you don't mind, we're going to go ahead, and you may remain seated since we just stood and sang. Um, I know that uh, uh, many times, and I love to hear the thundering voices of those men with stained glass voices that say, out of reverence for the word of God, let us stand, you know. I remember when I was a young preacher, I heard Monroe Parker. Monroe Parker said, I have read the entire Bible through on my knees. I thought, that sounds so wonderfully spiritual. So I did it. I did it. Read every bit of the King James Version from Genesis to Revelation on my knees. When I got through, I kid you not, the overwhelming thought was, it reads just as good sitting down. (laughs) I can reverence the Word of God sitting down. Please don't think less of me. I have reverenced the Word of God in the shower listening to Alexander Scorby. I have no problem reverencing the word of God, laying down, listening to it when I'm going to sleep. And so uh, if you don't mind, out of reverence for the word of God, let us sit tight. (laughs) Let us sit reverently. Do not squirm. Okay, but anyway, I don't know how to. (laughs) You know, when I was saying that, I had a flashback on Lord's Supper night sitting next to my mother. And I can remember her two fingers could grab hold of such a small amount of flesh, and she could do wonders with that. <laughs> Lord's Supper night, don't move, amen. Was your mom like that, boy? My, I mean, she was like that all the time. But a Lord's Supper night, you know, maybe it's because our name's Pope, and we looked at it more serious. <laughs> Domini okay, but anyway, anyway, all right. Yeah, I heard the announcement that the Pope is here, you know. Okay, I'm going to tell you, this is not a joke, it's real. My secretary's name for almost 40 years, Victoria Lord. You got to go through the Lord to get to the Pope at Christ Church Baptist Fellowship. And we were that close, John, we were that close from hiring John Bishop's son as our youth pastor. So we would have the bishop and the pope and the Lord all in a fundamental Baptist church. (laughs) Yeah, That's too weird, isn't it? Yeah. Can't make that stuff up. But we're not, to use the words of Ian Paisley, we're not Papists. Okay, we are Baptists. All right, anyway, Romans 6, verse number 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid? Amen. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. Therefore, we were buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died in the sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey in the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. But yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Amen. Know ye not that to whom ye you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin and the death or of obedience and the righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit in the holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we come to you and you said whatever we would ask in that name that we could receive the promise that comes with that name for in him are all the promises, yea and amen to the glory of God by us. We pray, Father, that we might to the best of our ability and beyond through your ability communicate this wonderful truth that for me was so life-changing. And I pray, Father, for those that already have been in this truth for decades. We're not giving them anything new. But it's good to be reminded of what the grace of God does through Jesus Christ our Lord. And for those that are strangers to the victorious Christian life that is emanating from every word of this passage, we pray that this might be something that they will not simply be spectators of, but they will be indoctrinated and just enter in to the truth of what is spoken here. Help them to realize if they know Jesus by personal Lord and Savior, they're already in. They don't even know how far in they're in. So I pray in Jesus' name that you might give us that Holy Spirit unction, the function for the message of the hour. We know that Satan has already been fighting this conference from things that we've already heard since we've been here. And even personally, what I've experienced in the spiritual warfare of getting to here today. So we understand that the devil's mad, but we're glad. So we pray that you will help us, Lord, and that you would bind the hands of Satan and that you would release the spirit. For if we get up here, and just read off the scripture without the Spirit's blessing. We will discover that the letter killeth. But you promise, but the Spirit giveth life. So we pray that you'll give life to the words that we speak today. And we promise to give you all the praise and honor and glory for thou alone art worthy. And if there be one in our midst that's a stranger to the saving grace of God, I pray that they realize they cannot save themselves, but they can be saved. Through the grace, through the love, through the mercy of our Lord, by the purchase blood of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. May they enter in by being saved. And then we pray, Father, that you'll just give us a great rest of this day and rest of this conference. Thank you for the good that's already been done. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor and I were talking about uh, 1969, and it did bring back to memory something that I was going to use in the introduction for the message today. Uh, That's the year that I graduated from high school, and at that time, I was matriculating into a college in Louisiana at that time, or as the northerners would say, Louisiana. But uh, when I was uh, matriculating, I remember we were over at the president's uh, house, And there were a lot of freshmen and a few sophomores and a few stuck-up juniors and seniors. Um, But everybody got very, very quiet. You know, when you get a lot of college kids together, it can really get quiet. And and I remember it got very, very quiet because there was a small TV in this room. And uh, we were watching it when Neil Armstrong took that one small step for man, that one giant leap for mankind. And of course, I think during this time, especially now I was rid much of my life in central Florida. So I can remember in the 60s um, going out to the window of our school that was built in 1913. And we had gigantic windows, especially in the deep south. That's the way they did when they didn't have air conditioning. They had these just gigantic windows. But I can remember going to the window and we would look toward uh, Cape Canaveral. That was before it was even called Cape Kennedy. And I can remember we could see that small little rocket from our distance in Lakeland going up. And, and I remember we were all thrilled with what was happening. We were allowed to come to school with our little transistor radios and listen into to everything that was being said. You know, in reading about the first men on the moon, because everything was leading up to the first man on the moon. And I mean, they did a lot after that. Matter of fact, my uh, son's father-in-law is a uh, rocket scientist. We say this sometimes, but I have a couple of my grandkids that literally have a grandfather that's a rocket scientist that helped build the shuttle. Uh, But even that was eclipsed by the event, especially... In the summer of 1969, when Michael Collins went around the moon and the eagle with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin went down to the moon. You do know, by the way, the very first word on the moon, don't you? Houston, tranquility base here. Amen. Not Menominee Falls, but Houston, (laughs) tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed. And then they got back in that little rocket. There was only one rocket. If it misfired, they would have died. They would have never gotten back to join Michael Collins. It was now 10 years later, 1979. And I was listening to an interview with Buzz Aldrin. And the reporter that was interviewing him believed, I could tell, that she was kind of hyped up. That she was going to get, you know, the headlines for the next day. Neil Armstrong was virtually a recluse. It was hard to get a word out of him anytime. time. But not Aldrin. Aldrin was a very outgoing kind of a fella. <laughs> Matter of fact, somebody accused him of not really landing the moon. He cold cocked him. I mean, that's Buzz Aldrin. He just is out there, you know. So he wasn't inhibited at all when he was being interviewed. And the reporter said, tell us, Mr. Aldrin, 10 years since you and Armstrong were first on the moon, give us a statement about where we were and how far we've come. And for those of you that are younger, you may not realize this, but because of the moonshot, everything changed. From the coating in our frying pans, to the lightweight vacuum cleaners, to the little computers in your pocket called iPhones or Samsungs, all of that. Do you realize that when man first went to the moon, there was more technology in the Ford Taurus dashboard than what got man to the moon and back? But that was the segue into the world that we live in of technology, the moonshot, because they had to miniaturize things, they had to empower things through chips and so on. So much has changed, Mr. Aldrin. Give us a statement. How far we've come in 10 years since you were first on the moon. I need to give you a parenthetical. Buzz Aldrin lost his mind twice in those 10 years. He lost his family in traumatic divorce, went through crisis and depression like few people have. Mr. Aldrin, tell us something. Give us a statement about where we were and how far we've come since then and I'll never forget his answer. Well, they taught us how to walk on the moon, but no one told us how to live on the earth. If I may take so auspicious a title, that's the message today, how to live on the earth. Allow me to give you my personal testimony. I was down in the gutter. I wallered in the muck and mire of this whole world. I did everything that was to do until I was gloriously saved at the age of six. Amen. Man, I did more sin after I was saved than before I was saved. <laughs> That's not good theology, I know, but it's the truth. The truth may set you free, and it does set you free, but sometimes it might make you miserable. But I can remember having the battle of my life, living the Christian life. I could only go so far because I was genuinely saved. Matter of fact, I remember as a teenager hearing some of my friends saved out of drug addiction. I thought, whoa, what a testimony. Mine's not so hot, you know. I I don't, you know, but, but yet... There was a comedian many years ago, a female, a comedian, I guess you would call her, Irma Bombeck, that wrote a book, and I remember seeing the title of the book, If Life is a Bowl of Cherries, Why Am I Always in the Pits? I actually know very well the grandson of the man who wrote Victory in Jesus. You do too, right? Yeah. Pastor is a Central Baptist in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. L- Louisiana, excuse me, forgot where I was. And I remember thinking, if there's so much victory in Jesus, why am I feeling so much like a loser? Now, you can't get more saved than you already are, right? I mean, when you are saved, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, not, not part, I mean, you are saved, and he sets up Residency. One of the great goals after really coming to the truth that I'm sharing with you today was to also let that truth be inculcated in the lives of the people that I pastor. To allow our condition to catch up with our position. To know who we are in Jesus Christ. What a glorious theme of the conference. I am that I am. To think that the Jehovah God would dwell within us. I know some of our Jewish friends are so afraid to write the name Jehovah or even Elohim that they don't even do it. But hey, if you're in the family, yeah, that's right. you know the I am. Hey, hey. And the I am is in you. Hey. He is that he is and he's in you. I remember somebody talking to the Dr. Rice once. They said, I'm really confused. Do I always have to do it exactly like this? Pray through the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, only to the Father. And Dr. Rice said, if you know all of them like I do, you can just address either one. It's okay, you know. I think mean, sometimes we, we get, we, sometimes, now on one hand, we ought not to be irreverent. Right. But on the other hand, we, we need to understand that we are in the family. Amen. My father was the most fearful man in my own life. But yet, if I wanted something, man, I know who to, who to go to. And I knew how to, you know, work with him because I was in the family. How to live on the earth. You see, what we just read in Romans chapter 6 is God teaching us, his children, not how to exist, but how to live on the earth. It really unlooses what um, Colossians 3 says. Remember? When Christ, who is our life, shall appear... We shall appear with Him in glory. You know, so many times we get so filled with eschatological thrills that we major on the fact that He's coming. Our life is coming. But it didn't say when Christ comes, He becomes our life. He's not just our life in the sweet by and by. Hallelujah. He is our life in the nasty now and now. When Christ, who is, present tense, our life. Our life now. Now. How do we come to that place when we really understand that we're living on the earth? We come to this discovery. Now discovery is finding treasure that's already there. You remember the parable of the treasure in the field, it was already there. Now notice what it says in Romans chapter six in verse number three. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Now I don't, I don't want to get so technical that I fend some and bring some. I know the arguments about Where does the water come in? Is the water there or not? So I would just say personally the way I see this, this is literal. So many of us as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, that's literal by the Holy Spirit placed in the mystical body of Jesus Christ. Therefore, because we are baptized into Jesus literally, we are buried with him by baptism into death. So I get water baptism to show what took place in my heart. Because we know that water baptism is not the washing away of the filth of the flesh, but it's the answer of the good conscience toward God to show others that we love Jesus and we've joined Him in death, burial, and resurrection, one with Christ. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism and the death, that like as, that's what baptism depicts, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, I think about the seed that is planted, the wheat that goes into the soil. We're planted. Out of the root comes the fruit. We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Here it is. Here's the discovery. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, Did not say we would not, but we should not. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died into sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. According to what the word of God says, there is a natural and it's kind of what Watch me, me talked about the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is to live a righteous life. Yes. Amen. You know what's an amazing thing to me? People that sometimes are tripping over the constant backsliding have it in their mind that they are doing more sin after they're saved than righteousness. You know, I did this with our people once, and I'm not going to do it now, but I said, I want you to get out a piece of paper, and I want you to write down everything you did day that you could deem or consider righteous. And I said, on another side of that paper, write down everything that you know for sure was an unrighteous act or thought. I discovered that all of my people that know Jesus Christ as Savior from their own confession said that they were actually able to make a longer list of the righteous things they did in the course of a day than the unrighteous things. Have you thought about what is even considered right? Let me give you a for instance, okay? We had an old English sheepdog. And if you've ever had an old English sheepdog, you know you can't brush it. You have to use a steel comb. And every time I would comb out the old English sheepdog, Fluffy, she lived up to her name. I was often reminded of daddy when he was telling, when we used to have chickens in the backyard, when he used to tell us these things. And that is the Bible says, a righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. So if I'm taking care of my dog, it is a righteous act. If I hold back my temper for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God, that is a righteous act. I would submit to you that most of you that are saved have never done an experiment like that. In the course, maybe at the end of the day, write down the righteous things, write down the unrighteous, and you'll find out if you know Jesus, you've done and you've thought more righteousness than unrighteousness. But the devil is a liar. And he will tell you that you are defeated. He will tell you that you sin all the time. You're gonna keep on sinning. (laughs) Have you ever thought about how we put the emphasis I'm just a sinner saved by grace. here's where we put the emphasis. I'm just a sinner, rotten, dirty, nothing good for nothing, sinner, saved by the grace of God. Huh? I think the emphasis should be, I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God. Huh? I think about, remember when we had the... um, Twin Towers playing for the Houston Rockets, Akeem Olajuwon. Did you know he did a lot of fouls? But he wasn't preoccupied with fouls. He knew what his job was. He knew who he was. He knew he was putting that ball in that basket. Can you imagine? Olajuwon fouls. He raised his hand. It's me. I'm a fouler. A filthy, good for nothing fouler. I happen to be a basketball player. No, he's a basketball player. He fouls, but he's not preoccupied with fouling any more than Babe Ruth was preoccupied with the strikeouts. He was pre- we need to be preoccupied with Jesus Christ because he said, the old man is crucified. Did he mean it or didn't mean it? Huh? Man, I hope I don't offend anybody, but if I do, I'm only here for a day. What, you know, does it- Right off, that's heresy, and keep on going. <laughs> but I remember as a kid, I heard all different versions of this. The Indian gets saved, and when he gets saved, the old chief is asked by the missionary, how are you doing? Ugh, big war going on side. Tell me about it. White dog fighting black dog. Who wins? One I say, sick him to. One I feed. White dog, black dog. And I remember growing up thinking, you know, when I, before Romans 6 was real to me, thinking, that's the way it is. Every day that you get up, everything's up for grabs. I mean, everything, every day you get up, it's just as easily to be unrighteous as it is to be righteous. It's just as easy. But the more I think about it, knowing this, that the old man is crucified, if we be dead with Christ, we believe, we believe. So, I mean, I think it's okay, white dog representing righteousness, black dog representing the old man, as long as you illustrate the white dog as a great healthy Dane and the black dog as a half-dead chihuahua. (laughs) This is what he says. The you, the new you that John talked about, the seed that remaineth in you, it's there. It's there. You don't have to invent it. You don't have to pretend to be righteous. God says for 2 Corinthians, what is it, 521, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made near right no, that we might be made the righteousness of God. So just come to the place of discovery. The old Man is crucified. Now there's a difficulty. God knows it. So in the context of the scripture, he's going to help us understand this. So then he says in verse 10, for he that is dead, he that died, he died in a sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, I love this. Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed in sin, but alive in the God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I like the word reckon, don't you? It's an amazing thing to me how that in the biblical colloquialism, how it matches southern colloquialism. Reckon. Huh? But I have to tell you, the southern colloquialism doesn't quite capture what reckon means here. Hey, Johnny, y'all go to the store and get a Dr. Pepper? I reckon so. Hey, Johnny, you think it's gonna rain? Mm, I reckon it's gonna rain. I reckon for the Southerners, maybe it is, maybe, maybe it is, maybe it's not, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But reckon here is an accountant's term. Uh, you know, years ago when we had the only way of balancing our checkbook was with pencil and paper. You remember that? And there were no cards that you could slip into little ATM machines or now just thump. It's kind of scary, isn't it? You take a card, and thump, <laughs> pay for it. I, I, I was getting a little something at the airport today and it says add the tip and I just hit one dot too much. I was given to give them a $100 tip. I just froze for a moment. I said, whoa, back in the old days. <laughs> now that's funny. I was imitating an old man. I, I did this the other day, I said, Barbara, to my wife. I said, I just imitated old man. What, I don't have to imitate it. <laughs> I, I'm there, and that's me. <laughs> it's, it's fun growing old. <laughs> by the way, a lot of ways that you know you're getting older, right? When, when everywhere you go, Girls are calling you honey and sweetie. How you doing, darling? You know, oh, brother. <laughs> they know you're safe, right? You, know, you're, yeah. you lean over to tie your shoe and you ask yourself, anything else I can do while I'm down there? <laughs> now, reckon. I remember when we first started out from scratch there in Houston, Texas, I'm telling you, we were as poor as Job's turkey and Job's turkey had to lean against the fence to even gobble, man, I'm telling you. (laughs) And I remember uh, I had to make a hospital call in my 1973 Volkswagen. The the, the brakes were really tricky, but thank God it was stick shift so we could slow it down, (laughs) you know. And I remember I had to do a 26-mile one-way, so it would be over 50 miles round trip, almost 60 miles by the time I get parked and everything. And I needed gas. I needed gas. And so uh, the last I had checked, I had $1 in my billful. So I was filling my $1 up. Okay, and there was no stuff on the pump for me to stick my little card in and flip it and all that. So I I, I went $1, got it done, and I went inside. That's how you used to pay for gas. You went inside of this little room and there was a guy. Okay, and you would actually pull out paper money. And I remember pulling out my Last one dollar bill. Stuck to my one dollar bill was a little bit smaller rectangular sheet of paper. Some of you might know what it was. It was a deposit slip. And I saw that deposit slip. Now, keep this in mind. When I balanced the checkbook two days earlier, Barbara said, Johnny, can we take the kids to McDonald's? I said, hey, it's my kind of place. Let me, let me finish out balancing the checkbook here. And then the Lord willing, after we pay the bills, we'll go to McDonald's. When I got through balancing the checkbook, I said, honey, we don't even have enough money for the, for the bills. We're not going to McDonald's. We stayed home and had our, my favorite, bologna and crackers. <laughs> and then the next day, my favorite, oatmeal. And I mean, really? Because I, I, I thought we had $1 and I didn't get paid till about a week from then. Yeah, you've been there, huh? It's, so I had that $1 bill. That $1 bill stuck. There was a rectangular sheet of paper. And two days earlier, I had done the checkbook, and I, I looked at that, and I, wait a minute. I, I, I. When you balance your checkbook, the bank would mail you paper, and the paper had an area where you would list the deposits that came in since the date of the statement, and you would take the outstanding and all this other stuff and the standing and then you would do the math. And, and I thought, wait, wait, I don't remember that. And I was going to go to the hospital. I decided to turn around and, and go home. He said, what about the guy in the hospital? Let the dead bury their dead. We need to. <laughs> we need to. We need to find out what's going on. Amen. I'll just. I'll just call the hospital and say, I'll be there in a little bit, okay? He didn't die, he didn't die, okay. So I went home and I opened up the statement and I looked and it said, add deposits since the date of the statement. (gasps) The date of the statement, the 11th of the month. The date of the deposit, the 13th of the month. Guess what was not added? That deposit. So I pulled out my pencil and I put down $362.22. Ha-hoo! I paid the two remaining bills. I said, Barbara, get the kids. Forget about McDonald's. We're going to Luby's tonight. <laughs> I'm talking about fried chicken and okra and banana pudding and about three glasses of iced tea. Glory to God. What about the guy in the hospital? God will take care of him. We've, <laughs> it's party time. It's party time. Now for two days I was filthy rich. Nothing changed. That money was in the bank. I just wasn't acting on it. I had not reckoned it to be so. Well, once I reckoned it, that changed everything. Happy days are here again. Oh yeah. I reckon so. I reckon so. You ever been to a circus or a carnival or the zoo, and you see this massive elephant, gigantic chain around its leg, and he takes a few steps, and the chain gets extended, and he stops. Wait a minute! It's just a little stub in the ground, and he stops you know that that elephant has enough strength to yank that chain right up and make road pizza out of all of us. (laughs) What keeps him there? The elephant trainer says when the little elephant is born, they put this massive chain around its leg, they get a railroad spike, they drive it in at a 45 degree angle and for three weeks, the little elephant fights to get loose of that chain. It can't do it. It grows up. Dumbo becomes Jumbo. <laughs> <laughs> but guess what? His greatest asset is his greatest liability. It is locked indelibly in his mind that once he comes to the end of the chain, he can't take another step. See, we don't respond to always the truth. We respond to what we perceive is the truth. If you perceive that you have no power through Jesus Christ our Lord to live the victorious Christian life as your faith is so be it unto you. You need to reckon this thing to be so. A pig farmer in Arkansas did this and he could not believe it. I think I shared this in the Midwest, and I think that the pigs in the Midwest are smarter than the Arkansas pigs. Matter of fact, I was born in Arkansas, and my mama says, Son, you're slow to catch on because you're born in Arkansas. <laughs> that hurt my feelings. But anyway, <laughs> daddy's a Texan, mama's an Ar- Arkansan, but, but uh, we won't go there. But it's fun, it's fun. Okay, that's my life. But this Arkansas pig farmer, I'm not not exaggerating. Uh, I told this somewhere, and and I think it was a Western farmer just found it hard to believe. But I'm telling you, like one guy said, I'm not preaching now, I'm telling the truth. (laughs) No, I'm telling the truth while I'm preaching, okay. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. Anyway, great peace have they which love thy law, nothing shall offend them, okay. Psalm 119, what did I do there? I don't know. I I was kidding around too much. God's punishing me. (laughs) Okay. Um, so they had a problem with runaway pigs and hogs. So he got a remedy. He put an electric wire around the fence. After every sow backed up on it, after every little piglet touched that, they wouldn't get near that fence. He decided to take the pigsty from one side of his acreage way over on the other side. So he removed the wire, the electric wire. They wouldn't move. He removed the fence and couldn't get them to move. The pigs came up to where the fence used to be and would not step beyond where the fence was. <laughs> Stupid pigs. <laughs> they were free. Nothing between them and the other side of the acreage, but fresh air. But they perceived they could not go a step beyond. If we are to really live the Christian experience, we need to discover that the old man is crucified. We need to have some determination and reckon this thing to be so. And again, God sees that in this determination that we need to go a step further. And we kind of got into it already, the decision process. So it says in verse number 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body the ye should obey in the lust thereof, neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. But look at here it is again. But yield yourselves unto God as those who are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Knowing is discovering, and reckoning is being determined, yielding is making a decision. I will live the righteous life. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. A decision. A decision. Nowadays I think that a lot of our brothers and sisters of Christ are too timid about making a righteous decision. We don't like being categorized legalists. Whenever somebody says to me, are you an e- Are you a legalist or something? I say, wait, wait, I'll answer that when you answer this one first. Yeah, what's that? Are you an illegalist? Are, are you pushing illegality? Isn't it amazing when you think about this? The Bible said it right here in Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin? Years ago, I was in North Carolina. I was reading the scripture. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And there's a guy that evidently wasn't listening very well. And he hollered, yes! And I said, no! (laughs) God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Grace is not a license to do and live any way you want to. And where did you ever get the idea that living a holy life is legalism? It is an expression of our love to Jesus. If I love my wife, she has every right to say if I've been too friendly with another young lady. And by the way, that not happened like I am just lately, no, no. Hey, when I was first met her, I, 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 I got onto that one real quick, huh? But that's no problem because I love her. So my expression of love to her is that I'm not overly friendly with another young lady. In sickness and in health, and poverty is in wealth, forsaking all others and cleaving to thee, and thee only, until death parts me. Well, how legalistic can you get? If you want a successful marriage, you better be there. Yeah, amen. Right? Amen. Right? So look at it like this Under the law, it says, Thou shalt not kill. Under grace, it says, If you hate your brother, you've killed him already. Yeah. Under the law, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Under grace. If a man even looks on a woman, he's committed adultery with her already in his heart. See, grace doesn't lower a standard of living. Grace raises a standard of living. Right? There's nothing spiritual about being carnal and sensual. There's nothing spiritual about you know getting poured in your little skinny jeans and getting up on the stage up here and bumping and grinding and dancing and carrying on. I know that for many people, we may look like outsiders and dinosaurs, but what we believe is what the old timers all believe. And do you remember what the old timers used to say? Before you move a fence, you better ask yourself, why was it put there to begin with? Amen. Some of us need to make a decision. I'm going to yield yes. my body. What? Know you not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost? You're yes. not your yes. own. You're bought with yes. a price. I like what I heard Tim Butler say recently. We were together in a conference. He said, if you're bought with a price, is Jesus getting what he paid for? That's a thought, isn't it? If we're bought with a price, is he getting what he paid for? Now there's a discovery that we find out that the old man is crucified. There's a new man inside you. There's a determination that needs to take place. Reckon this to be so, but we need to have this great decision process. I will yield to what I know is right. I will pray whether I feel like it or not. Many times I don't feel like praying. My dear mama had it right. Boy, when you feel like praying, when you feel like praying the least is when you probably need to pray the most. Rarely do I get all worked up over going door to door, getting them slammed in my face, but I've never regretted going door to door. You know, not that interesting? I've often, why do you do it? Because I, I need to yield myself to this. You didn't get your Bible reading done, but you know you need to read the Bible, and you're tired, and you didn't get enough sleep, and so you stand up and you start walking around reading the Bible because you're telling Jesus, I love you with all my heart, and I'm gonna yield myself to what I know is true. Wherewith shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to the word. Thy word have I in my heart that I might not sin against God. I can't live with man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word first received out of, of the mouth of God. So you do it. Ecstasy is there at times. The hule, as the old Welshman would say, is there when God is so manifested that if you open your eyes for prayer, you almost feel like you're going to see Jesus. is what the old Irish call the thin place when heaven is so close and earth is so close, you can't tell where earth ends and heaven begins. Yeah. You'll have those moments. But by the way, you'll never have those moments if you don't yield yourself on a continual, perpetual basis right. to prayer, to Bible, to holiness, making a decision every day, dying to self, living unto the Lord, for Christ is our life. Now, I want to get to the deliverance because this is where the deliverance takes place. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you for not under the law, but under grace. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey. There it is again. Yield yourselves servants to obey. His servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin and the death or of obedience under righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, whether you were saved at 6, 16, or 60, you were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which has delivered you. Most every Bible I have, I underline those words, obeyed from the heart. Here's, my brothers and sisters, here's the deliverance right here the deliverance from the, this is, this is the epitome of what Paul was saying in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth within me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's that exchange life. When this point is real in our life, there is a deliverance. There is a power. This is probably the threshold and the breaking point of the blessed infilling of the Holy Spirit. When He has all of you. Years ago, I remember reading the story of Charles Lindbergh, first man to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. Everyone told him he's a fool to do this, he couldn't sleep the night before. It was not an asphalt or concrete. Runway, it was dirt with a little bit of pebbles and shell. It had rained all that night. So as he began to roll down the runway to take off, to fly across the ocean, his plane wheels were getting sucked up into the mud. He could hear the sloshing sound as they were being sucked into the earth. And he thought to himself, I can't get up. And he said, I heard a voice inside me saying, Charles, you're a fool. No one has ever flown across the Atlantic Ocean. You're on I either. It's not too late. Stop. He said, I didn't stop. I wanted to. And then I began to finally get some lift. And I could hear, as is he, is he pulled out of the mud. But now there's another problem. You see, if you've ever been to the Smithsonian and you've seen the spirit of St. Louis, there's no Window in the front. you got to look out the side. It's basically a flying gas tank. So he's just barely in the air. At the end of the runway are some tall trees. He said, I'm going to hit them. I'm going to explode in a flame. And I heard that voice said, bring it down. You're a fool. It's not too late. Settle down. Cut the engine. Glide in. Nobody's flown across the Atlantic. You can't either. Stop. He said, I didn't. I barely cleared the trees, but I did. And I'm flying along the eastern seaboard and people are waving American flags. Then a little bit further north, I saw some Canadian flags. And the people, I could hear them cheering me on. (laughs) But I heard a voice saying, Hey, Charles, what do you think you're doing? Nobody's flown across the Atlantic Ocean. You can't either. You'll die. It's not too late. Just turn around and land it. He said, I didn't. I went across the ocean. He said, I was so sleepy. I hadn't slept in days. And twice, in his own biography, autobiography, he says, twice, I fell asleep and woke up as I'm pitching down into the water. Pulled it up in time. And guess what I heard? That voice, hey, Charles, what are you doing? Nobody's ever flown across the Atlantic Ocean. You can't either. You're a fool to go further. Stop it now. Turn around, go back. Then I had a storm. It was so rough, I couldn't get above it. I couldn't get around it. The only near place of even some tranquility was a foot and a half to two feet above the ocean waves. For an hour and a half, Lindbergh was periodically sprayed from the waves of the ocean. And guess what he heard? The voice. Hey, Charles, what are you doing? Nobody's ever flown across the Atlantic Ocean. You can't either. Turn this thing around. Landed back in America. You're closer to America than you are to Europe. Turn around. You can't make it. He said, finally, I came to that place in the North Atlantic that we navigators call the point of no return. It's the exact midway point between Europe and America. When I flew one foot beyond that point of no return. I never heard the voice again say to me, turn around, Charles. You're closer to America than you are to Europe. I heard a new voice. Go ahead, Charles. Go ahead. You'd be a fool to go back. You're closer to the other side than you are to America. This is where you cross the point of no return. Kind of like that old quartet song, you've come too far too Turn back! Oh, that's so corny. But it's true. You haven't gone far enough. What is that point of no return? It's the greatest commandment of all. Loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your might, all of your mind. And then notice it said, Jesus said, quoting from the Pentateuch, and your neighbor is yourself. We will have no ministry with others until we get to this, this settled point till we love Jesus with everything that we have. It almost seems so simple. we stumble over the simplicity. It's relational. It's relational. I've known many a man, some of you preachers, know many a man that would be considered a great CEO type. Always oh, got such leadership, but I've seen him fall. I've known men that were great, didactic, incredible teachers. I mean, could know what the Bible is saying and make it so clear it seems like. I'm, I've known them to fall. I've known men that could just pull crowds and some men that could wow people have fallen. But I will tell you personally, now on a personal basis, being reared in a preacher's home. I mean, I went to church nine months before I was born. I mean, I'm there. Being reared in a preacher's home, reared up in this wonderful movement we call fundamentalism. I've personally never known a man or a woman of prayer that ever really fell. And I think what it is, you see, when a person spends a lot of time with God, it's because they're expressing their love to the Lord. You cannot live in the, and I just dropped my thing here. You cannot live in the holy place and live an unholy life. And the only people that are living in the holy place are people that are there because you love him. If you love someone, you talk to them. Mm. Preacher said, if you've said I love you to your wife in the last week, stand up. Most everybody stood up except one man here and a few over there. In the last two days, everybody except the last date. No. And then he went the other way. He said, if you've said I love you your wife in the last year, no, two years, still sitting there. Five years, 10 years. Finally, he said, sir, it's been 10 years since you said, no, it's been about 25 years since I said I love you. What? Yeah, hey, I told her the day I got married, I loved her. I said, if I ever change my mind, you'll be the first one to know. <laughs> How many know that that marriage is in trouble? Now, I, I'm being facetious. Okay, that's a joke. Okay, some of you are going, wow, who is that guy? <laughs> okay. Do you understand what I'm saying? You know, it, it's the funniest thing. In all my decades of marriage counseling, <laughs> if I can just get the couples talking to each other, everything changes. Huh? I mean, there are times I'm counseling, but I'm just sitting there. And pretty soon, they, you know, they came in the office and she's here and he's here. <laughs> well, go ahead and tell, explain to her what you mean. Well, tell him what you mean, okay. And then pretty soon they get close, They've got their arms around each other. It's over. I didn't do anything. <laughs> Brother Pope, I don't know, I... I've got this besetting sin. Tobacco, alcohol, pornography, gossip, anger, just on and on and on. I just, you're right there in Romans chapter 7 and and, and that's, I I just can't get past that. We'll read chapter 6 and chapter 8, put it all together and you'll see if you obey from the heart. Obeying not because my daddy was a holy man of God is twisting my arm to live this way. Come on, Brother Jim, Brother Wayne, your dad's a godly man, but you're not sitting here because your daddy's making you sit here. He's been in heaven for a long time. Right. So why are you here? I would suspect it's because somewhere in your life yeah. you're obeying Jesus from God. The heart, you've got this great relationship working with him. It's not that difficult. Just stay with it till it becomes habit. And the habit can later become greater avenues of wonderful splendor like we've never known before. I'm going to close with this. Some of you might remember Telly Savalas. He was a character in the 1970s called Kojak. And at one time, he was probably the most popular man <clears throat> on American TV. Dr. Paul Van Gorder was flying to Athens, and Dr. Van Gorder said that <clears throat> he was sitting toward the front of coach, and he saw Savalas come in to first class. He was in a rude attitude, and he grabbed his stuff, put it in the overhead, and just said, right out loud, "I'm on holiday." And I'm not giving any interviews to anybody. I want to be left alone. And he sits down. And Van Gorder thought, well, that was rude, you know. So the plane ascended and it leveled off. And, and, the, and the curtain was cracked open there. So Van Gorder said, I saw something. A well-dressed distinguished gentleman in his mid-30s got up from his seat. And he walks across first class and he comes over to Telly Savalas, the famous American actor. Who, whose roots were, you know, DNA genetically in, in, in Greece. And he said, Mr. Savalas, you know, the whole country of Greece knows who you are, and they're so proud of you. I have a few questions I'd like to ask you. Would that be okay if I'd sit here for just a few minutes and, and, and talk to you for a little bit? Savalas said, I guess you weren't here when I came on the plane and said, I'm not going to be talking to anybody. I'm on holiday. Buzz off, buddy. Oh, Mr. Savalas, I I didn't mean to offend you. Forgive me. He goes back over. So I don't know what the time period was, but it was 45 minutes from landing. So now six, seven, eight hours have gone by. (laughs) Van Gorder said, "Uh uh-oh, the guy in his mid-30s, well-dressed, distinguished gentleman, gets up from his side, crosses first class again and said, excuse me, Mr. Savalas, I know that you want to be left alone, but I just got a." couple of questions honestly it's not going to take probably three minutes maybe five minutes at the most to ask you a couple questions would that be okay and Savalas said no it won't I said maybe you people in Greece don't know the slang term buzz off it means I'm not talking buzz off buddy Mr. Savalas I am so sorry I didn't mean to upset you and I promise you I won't be bothering you anymore The well-dressed, distinguished gentleman sat down again. Now the plane lands. Paul Van Gorder said, there were a group of people on the tarmac. They were waiting for the stairs to come against the jet, and they were waiting at the bottom of the stairs. Savalas looks out his window and sees them, and he curses and says, I'm not giving any interviews. I'm on holiday. Like, oh, brother. So the plane came to the stop, the door opens, Savalas jumps up, grabs us overhead, and a little Grecian sturdist steps into his seat area, puts her hands up, and says, Stop right there. Savalas got a strange look on his face, like, Do you know who you're talking to? She says, Stop right there. She said, No one exits the plane before his majesty. His majesty. Uh, the well-dressed distinguished gentleman his mid-30s, was the king of Greece. <laughs> that Savalas told not once but twice, buzz off! I wonder what the conversation would have been like. Were you saying, oh, Mr. Savalas, why don't you stay in the palace? They got a good cook there, but not like ours. Can you imagine the fellowship that he could have had with a king of Greece? That he told to buzz off? We're too busy. The average American is too busy. And many Christians have fallen into that busyness. You can see it in the way people drive, the the way we communicate, the way we are living. In the early morning hours, the Lord is talking to you, trying to get your attention. And you're not saying it, but in essence, you're saying, buzz off to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who just wants a portion of your time Is it true that if I give a portion of my money to God, he'll do more with what's left than if I hog it all to myself? If it's true of our money, how much more would it be of our time if we invest more time with Jesus? And if you live in the manifested presence of God, you will find what that song said to be so true. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace how to live on the earth. Deliverance will come when you obey from the heart. Not just because you're supposed to. They expect me to. I've got to. It's because you love Him.